Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lacey Hall. Lacey, how are you? I'm doing really well, Corey. Thank you for having me. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely happy that we could have you on the podcast today. So before we dive in, Lacey, why don't you go ahead and give the listeners your background and what you're doing now? Sure. Happy to do so. I went to school to become a dietitian. I have a master's of science in clinical nutrition from right here in Chicago from a great academic medical center called Rush University Medical Center. There, I worked in a much more serious medical landscape of the acute care setting, working with critically ill patients that were, you know, oftentimes reliant on tube feeds or intravenous feeding in order to stay alive. From there, I ended up going to another academic medical center working in oncology for a short stint. But all along the way, I, I always knew a more integrative approach was more of my mindset and my philosophy. I actually did my master's thesis on dietary supplementation in inpatients. So I always had a, a, d- a deeper desire to get to the root of everything, focus on root cause medicine and understand dietary supplements and preventative health. So I was always a bit of the hippie dietitian in those more serious settings. I honestly, I would get paged to over on the entire hospital system to come help with specific educations around organic eating or veganism or whatever it may be, because it was kind of a foreign concept to a lot of people, surprisingly. So from there, I started dabbling in the integrative and functional space, working with various companies. But today I find myself working for Microbiome Labs. Been here for four years now. I'm the director of clinical education. So my team and I were responsible for putting out a lot of information all around the microbiome. So we educate the masses and understanding that complex world, that really foreign world of microbial ecology and how it impacts human health, which is a really fun space to be in, a rapidly evolving and ever-growing and ever-changing space. Yeah, I feel like rapidly evolving is an understatement. Oh my goodness, it is just so expansive and it has, it's so deep and there's so many different ways that we could go with this, but... Mm -hmm. So when you say things like integrative functional space, like what does that mean? Sure. So, you know, you have your different just personas in medicine in general. And allopathic is just more of your conventional care, going to your primary physician for your, you know, maybe your annual checkup versus an integrative physician may look a little bit deeper. You still go to those annual visits, but they may run more extensive laboratory work or or look outside the box a little bit more, maybe run an entire micronutrient panel or a stool test. And the the really big driver, I think, for patients turning toward that type of medicine is the personalized care. They want to be talked to as an individual. They want the recommendations to be uh, unique to them. They don't want it to yeah. feel cookie cutter or like they're just kind of going through a revolving door going into these offices with a five-minute visit where no one's even looking you in the eye. I say that from personal experience recently going to a more allopathic doctor. And so I think people just desire more or they are finding solutions to their symptoms and they're turning to other professionals to help guide them toward the less obvious conditions like Lyme disease or mycotoxins from mold or different autoimmune conditions where 
they're told, oh, you're fine. But really, there is something happening under the surface. And yeah. oftentimes, an integrative or functional medicine practitioner will, will go the extra mile, but go a little bit deeper. Okay. That's, that's really good because I think sometimes those terms can sometimes just kind of mentioned sure. and there's not, not a great definition around them. So I'm glad that you were able to, to, to define those. So it's definitely more of a philosophy, I think, on how you want to practice medicine. And we see more doctors turning toward it, I think, because of their own frustrations with the medical model. Absolutely. And they want to go back to what they, they went to school for. And that's really mm. treating the patient. Yeah, no doubt. Mm. So today we're going to talk about probiotics mm -hmm. and, you know, terminology here. Sometimes even I get a little unsure about with what, yeah. we're, what we're talking about. So we're going to get to probiotics. But before we get there, I do want to make sure that we talk about this whole idea of the gut microbiome and sure. not only what that is, but make sure, making sure like the listener understands, you know, the role that it plays mm -hmm. in the body and the effects that we, we know that it will have mm -hmm. and maybe some of the effects we think it might have. So before we get to the probiotic specific stuff, can you just sure. define what, what is meant by the gut microbiome, its roles, and then its effect on health? Absolutely. It's such a fun topic for me to discuss. And you're not alone in feeling like this is a foreign concept. You know, even physicians and myself as a dietitian, I didn't go to school for microbiology. So when you start dabbling into this space, there's new terms, there's new functions. It's, it's a totally, it's almost like outer space, like that last frontier type of feeling. And like you said at the beginning of the podcast, we are at the tip of this iceberg and, and it is rapidly evolving. So, you know, what we speak of today, maybe in 10 years, will be totally different, which is fun and frustrating at the same time. But it's cool that it's constantly changing. So your microbiomes, let's just talk about biomes in general. When we think about the entire human body, you are not just human cells. You are a collection of so many different organisms. And a long time ago, we used to think that there are, were sterile parts of the human body, like your bladder or the amniotic fluid within the uterus and in, in utero for a baby. Now we know today that there are no sterile parts of your body. There is a microbial blueprint, basically a collection of different microorganisms, whether it's viruses, bacteria, funguses living in and all over your body. Even your your ear canal has a collection of microorganisms and a unique blueprint or fingerprint to what that looks like. But the biggest collection of bacteria and other organisms lives in your colon. Now, if we think about your entire digestive tract from your mouth all the way to your anus, it's you know about 20 feet or 25 feet, depending on how long, stretched out. So quite long. Your colon really only occupies or takes up the last five feet of that space. And that's where over 90% of those microorganisms reside. So that container, basically, it's a totally different world compared to the rest of your digestive tract, houses trillions of bacteria and microorganisms mm. that are playing a role in your overall health. So that's the, the gut microbiome. Other important biomes on the body are your skin, your mouth, vaginal microbiome being very important as well. All these have different links to health. Now with the gut microbiome, we're particularly interested in it for a number of reasons. One, the immune system. Your immune system relies so heavily on those microorganisms to function properly. You actually can't have a functioning immune system without the bacteria 
They outnumber your immune cells. They outnumber your human cells 10 to 1, which is kind of hard to totally comprehend. It's a little trippy, but (laughs) your healthy bacteria helps support the development of your immune system. It's very important in children. Your gut plays a huge role in hormone balance, like estrogen balance, plays a big role in brain development, especially the early years of childhood, those first few years of life, making it really important for brain maturation, the ability for neuroplasticity, meaning your brain's ability to adapt. It's really important from a gut standpoint. And it plays a role in detoxification, huge link to the liver. Your gut and liver are intimately connected by a a strong bloodstream where your body is trying to get rid of toxins all day long, everything that we're exposed to. And without your colon, your liver would be, you know, really backed up. So your colon is playing a huge role. That microbiome is playing a huge role in helping to excrete all the toxins that we're exposed to on a day-to-day basis. So that's sort of some of the primary functions. There are certainly more, but those are some of the the broader overviews. And we can dive into more details on any of those if you want. That is extremely interesting. I I mean, immunity is one that's pretty, I feel like, well-known. But yeah, neuroplasticity, detox, those are new to me. Um, Yeah. So I want to go back to this term gut microbiome for just a second. So when we talk about the gut microbiome, Mm -hmm. what we're really talking about for the most part is the large intestine where the vast majority of the bacteria reside. But there are bacteria in stomach and small intestine. Is that correct? Yeah, especially where the small intestine and large intestine link Mm -hmm. up. It's called the ileocecal valve. It's just that Mm -hmm. kind of juncture. And so we do see a higher concentration of bacteria there. Now, the reason why they love the colon, and they have to go through this sort of gateway to get into the colon um, or the food that you're consuming. It has to go through this gateway, this valve. Once you get past that valve, there's not a lot of oxygen there. The pH changes. It just becomes a different environment from the small intestine. The small intestine is more used for digestion, absorption of the nutrients that you're eating, the secretion of enzymes and bile acids and such. Now, you can't have an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. It's quite common. It's a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. And we see that quite often. And we talk about that almost daily with people. It has a different set of symptoms that can go along with it. You don't want that. You don't want a lot of bacteria in your small intestine. We, we need to clear right. that out. That's a problem. But that is a very common condition that people suffer from and are faced with daily. So how, I guess, I'm sure there's... D- mechanisms that you know the microbiome is exerting its effects mm-hmm. there's some general ways that effects are exerted because i'm thinking like when i think about immunity right we've got hydrochloric acid in the stomach that that's yeah. part of the immune system um but i'm kind of thinking in my head well by the time stuff reaches the large intestine that's a lot of like we meant like you mentioned 20 25 feet you know, might have gone several feet inside your GI tract and if the microbiome or the the bacteria is conferring immunity effects but it resides in this large intestine how is it exerting our overall immune effect a complicated thing but here I can I'll give you (laughs) a little bit of an overview of self when we get to the large intestine your microbiome and all those bacteria could be your biggest ally or your greatest foe or your, your greatest enemy because you don't want bacteria, any bacteria entering into your bloodstream, right? Right. That can right. equal a sepsis or a bacterial infection. 
And so it, it's a dangerous place in a lot of ways for your body. So because of that, it's more heavily lined with immune cells than anywhere else in your body. Right below the, or right inside your body, right inside of your digestive tract, on the other side of your gut microbiome is your immune system. 70% of your immune system resides in the gut. That's what that means. It's where a lot of your immune cells reside. Okay. Now, the, think of it as sort of a training camp or a boot camp for your immune cells that are developing. They need to be trained to understand who is friend and who is foe. You don't want your immune system going around attacking healthy cells in the human body. That's autoimmunity. We want to make sure it understands self versus non-self. So what happens is certain immune cells will actually pull bacteria from the gut, from the microbiome, and use it to help train your adaptive immune system, like your T cells, your B cells. It plays a role, the microbiome plays a role in that development. And that's really important, especially in children. And, you know, we see children that had been exposed or overexposed to things like antibiotics have higher instances of things like allergies and asthma, you know, definitely related to that immune response. And a lot of that is rooted in the gut. Now, other ways in which the immune system plays a role with the microbiome, it's really just the type of bacteria residing there in general. So if we imagine the, in a very simplistic term, what is the gut microbiome? What's a kind of an analogy? It's like a rainforest. So we want it to look like a rainforest. We want lots of different species. Just like in a rainforest, you'd want all sorts of different plants and animals. You want it to be very rich and lush. Now, that's the goal. We want a lot of different types of bacteria. We want a lot of different types of microorganisms. That's called diversity. That's the number one most important part of a healthy microbiome, high diversity, just like a rainforest. Now, when you are overexposed to things like antibiotics, antimicrobials in our diet and lifestyle, it ends up looking like a desert. You know, it's, it's definitely not high diversity. You have a few overgrowths of different types of bacteria, and oftentimes they're inflammatory. Now, different groups of bacteria, like the ones we utilize in probiotics, have been linked to more healthy outcomes and, and better links to the immune system as, as the helpers that are training the immune system. So we kind of start there and we look at that, that core group of bacteria that are very important. They're called the keystone species of bacteria. And there aren't a lot of them, but they're the healthiest ones. And some of them you've probably heard of, like bifidobacteria, bacillus, and then there's quite a few other crazy names like acromancia, mucinophila, and Eubacterium rectilinae that also share a lot of those same effects in supporting immune health, along with other other functions as well. Okay, yeah, you actually hit on one of the questions I was going to go to next is like, what are the the tenets of a healthy microbiome and therefore a healthy gut? And so you mentioned diversity. Mm -hmm. so it's not just like let's overload with a lot of bacteria, but diversity matters. Too. Yeah. We and want so, a lot of organisms at the party, so to say. The more, the sure. better. You, know, sure. you really want that rich ecosystem, but diversity is number one. So how can, how do, how can someone tell, you know, externally sure. or based on how they feel if they're, they have good diversity or a health environment? That's hard from an external standpoint because you don't always know it's looming under the surface. It's kind of like an iceberg. You know, you get to only see a tip. 
Now, some things that could drive you to, to dive further would be the consistency of your stool. If you Google Bristol stool chart, you can get a sense of what a healthy bowel movement looks like, whether you're a bit constipated or if you're on the looser end. Those are all signs of what's going on in your body. Definitely take a look, take a peek of what's happening in the toilet. We're not shy about that in my house. My son gives me an update every single day. So (laughs) make it commonplace. Make poop talk normal. Normalize poop talk. Exactly. I'm going to put it on a t-shirt. And so, (laughs) you know, that's one way. Another way would be looking at your skin. There's something called the gut-skin axis. So those that suffer from eczema, atopic dermatitis, there's certainly a direct link between what's happening in your gut and what, what you're seeing on the outside. What else? Bloating, gas, constipation, diarrhea, all those, those obvious symptoms. Sure. Now, if you want to get a deeper dive, we do a lot of stool testing. So we can take yeah. a sample of your stool and get an entire profile of understanding what bacteria are living in your gut and what are they doing for you, for or against you. And that helps us come up with a really personalized and tailored plan of what probiotics to use, what foods to use. I'm a dietitian. I love using food and diet more than anything. And then, you know, that that really links back then to the individual. And some people are shocked. They're like, wow, I thought I was doing everything right. And you're showing me that there's a lot of inflammation. Hmm. It's it's eye-opening. It it definitely is Mm eye-opening. And so if you've gotten this far in the episode, and you're like, why are they talking about poop? This is something that, you know, really, I didn't learn until grad school about how the microbiome is studied. And I'm like, because I went to Iowa State for a while, did some research yeah. at Iowa State. And there was a pretty, you know, we a lab that did microbiome research. And I'm like, I never want to be in that lab ever <laughs> because they're literally studying poop all the time. And I can't remember if it was one of my... Uh, shall we say uh, tissue harvesting for the for the, the the rats that we were using for our study, and the vet school also came to this, you know, the the kill, and they took the colons, no, and the, right. and, yeah. and they're just like, you guys better hope we don't puncture a colon, and so the whole time I'm like on pins and needles, thinking like, man, if they puncture a colon, I don't know what I'm gonna smell. This is crazy. I did not know that probiotic research was like this. Oh, so yeah. That is how the, this is how it's assessed, right? It's you're taking a, a stool sample. You're seeing what bacteria are in that stool. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you can determine what might be happening. Is that correct? Yeah, we know we know a lot about a species of bacteria. And there's still some being discovered. But, you know, there are sure. thousands where we understand their personality. Type. What, what are their mm-hmm. characteristics? Are they producing things that are helping you and helping your health or, or are they more inflammatory in nature and causing issues for you. So it's pretty cool. We can see, you know, we can see bacteria that stem from the mouth that are ending up in the colon. And then we talk about stomach acid. Why is it your stomach acid killing these bacteria? They shouldn't be reaching through. You know, there's, sure. there's a lot that we can uncover from the entire digestive tract. It's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned like things that, that these bacteria produce. Mm-hmm. One, you know, so in addition to the things you mentioned earlier about how these bacteria can further effects, we also know that they can produce things that then are absorbed into circulation. Absolutely. So like I said, when I was at Iowa State, a major area of research was resistant starch Fantastic. and the ultimate uh, short chain fatty acids that 
the bacteria would then ferment the resistant starches into. And then how did those, those short chain fatty acids affect, you know, insulin sensitivity or blood glucose management? So like that, that's just so fascinating to me. It's so cool. So we even have those types of things. The gut microbiome is affected. So let's talk then about how the diet affects our gut microbiome, because You know, this is an area I think of a little bit of controversy of like how much yep. can we really affect it? Um, and what, if we can, what are the main things? So let's sure. start with like food first. What are the main things that we would need to make sure that we're doing to promote and support a healthy environment? Sure. So you touched upon one thing, short chain fatty acids, and I'm going to bring that up with food. So okay. one of the really important things that we want to feed we want to feed our bacteria, specifically those healthy commensal, those healthy keystone species of bacteria. That's the group we're looking to feed. Now, what do they like to eat? That's what we need to know. What is their palate like? And we know. Like, that's the, the nice part is we know what they like. And they like plants. They really love plant fiber. They love fiber. And the human genome and the enzymes that you make to absorb your food don't digest fiber. They don't break down fiber. Fiber is a specific food for your bacteria. So, you know, in your diet, you can have different types of fiber. There's soluble fiber, which is sort of like a gel that's really good for binding things like bile and acids. Then you have insoluble fiber, like the skin of of an apple that acts more of a pusher. And both of those are important to feed those groups of bacteria. Now, when you feed them, those bacteria, they produce something called short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are kind of like smoke signals or signaling molecules that leave the colon and they signal to other parts of the body, whether it be for something like metabolic health, like you mentioned, insulin sensitivity or glucose sensitivity and gut-brain health. That's where the the neuroplasticity piece comes into play when we're talking about short-chain fatty acids. And it also helps to nurture the actual cells in the colon and becomes a really important energy substrate for them as well. So we use foods like fiber. It's called a prebiotic. So prebiotic feeds your bacteria, the probiotic. So we can utilize oligosaccharides. That's a type of fiber as well. And you can get them in a supplement, but you can also use food sources. So really paying attention to kind of a plant forward and just doesn't have to be high in carbohydrates helps with that short chain fatty acid production. Now, key word, end of that term, acid. Acid is really important. We want the colon to be slightly more acidic. And what can happen is if you're not consuming that type of diet, it can create a more alkaline environment, so a higher pH. And that's just going to be more conducive to the overgrowth of potentially harmful or pathogenic organisms like E. coli or C. diff or salmonella. I mean, these are not organisms we see in high amounts oftentimes. Some of them are life-threatening. But we can see other groups that are overgrowing because they like that more alkaline-rich environment. So without those energy substrates in the food and fiber form, you can see that shift. That happens often with a, a standard American diet, you know, just more of a more processed foods, sure. more high sure. sugar, yeah, you know, non non-high fiber carbohydrates. But we can also see this happening with very high protein consumption, which can become more controversial though. Those that are on a very high protein diet or very high fat diet in the form of keto, 
end up starving their microbiome over the course of time unless they're taking specific action to incorporate you know, very low glycemic vegetables in their diet, maybe something sure. like cabbage or kale, you know, where it's not making an so you have to take particular care of your microbiome if you are on one of those therapeutic diets. And I understand the reasons why. I just work in yeah. a different space of supporting the bacteria, not thinking about everything else. So, yeah. but I get hate mail sometimes when I talk bad about a ketogenic diet. <laughs> so I have to be um, careful. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, can be sticky. So are, are all fibers prebiotic in nature or are there some, some fibers that are not? There's different, yeah, there's definitely different kinds. You mentioned resistant starches, which are amazing. They're yeah. a different type of fiber. You can make them in your kitchen. Use your kitchen as sort of a, a laboratory to create resistant starch, which would be in the form of something like cooked and cooled rice or cooked and cooled corn, unripe bananas. I don't really eat green bananas, but you can buy the powder if you want to take the shortcut like I do. <laughs> Green banana powder or raw potato starch, those are all resistant starches. And they mm. feed some of the most important bacteria, like bifidobacteria, in the gut. So we know that they love those foods. And that then helps the bifidobacteria feed other bacteria around. Them. It helps it to break down these big, complex fibers like Pac-Man to create smaller fibers that feed other bacteria in the community. That's how we enrich diversity. We want to support the feeding and the nurturing of all of the bacteria in that community. Um, oligosaccharides are a shorter type of fiber, and there are, there are different kinds out there. The most common is probably fructose oligosaccharide. You can find that in kiwi, actually. And that actually it helps really well with motility, too, like bowel movements and having a better bowel movement. But that'll see a number of really healthy groups of bacteria as well. There, there are others after too. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So I do want to just ask a little bit about the somewhat of the duality of fiber. Like mm -hmm. you mentioned, insoluble fiber is more like a pusher. Yeah. So that'd be like, a, like the, the regularity, so to speak. Yeah. Because there is like a little bit of a tipping point with fiber, if I, if I understand correctly. So let's say someone does like, I'm going to increase fiber because it's going to support my microbiome. Yeah. And then they might have like quite a bit more regularity than, than normal or maybe a looser stool. And then they might be thinking, okay, what's happening here? Does that happen or is that pretty? Unfair? It's more of a bloating factor. I think that would be the yeah. more common. If you're, if you're using things like oats and beans, you know, you should see a, a nice bulk. It should be a healthier mm -hmm. stool. Looking again at the Bristol stool chart, it should be somewhere between like a three or four where it's, it's looking good. If it gets looser, I would, I would be surprised oftentimes because fiber okay. can be like a sponge. If you're not drinking enough water, it can actually cause the opposite where you're a little blocked up for a bit until things normalize. If that happens, you know, take a little magnesium citrate and things will, things will go back to normal. We've always got something, you know, a pill for that, a pill for this. For sure. So there's a way to overcome it. But yeah. oftentimes you, you adjust, you know, most Americans are getting about 10, 12 grams of fiber a day. We really want people striving between 20 and 30. And that's not always easy. It's a lot of chewing, you know, and there are times where I'm like, I feel like a rabbit. I don't want to eat any more. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, there's ways to sneak it in with smoothies and soups and steamed vegetables. How about the fibers that are ending up in all these low carb products? So, the, you know, I'm, I'm thinking Quest bars, I'm thinking low carb or like, yeah, low carbohydrate tortillas or breads, like, 
you know, they're all inulin. Jack, yeah, they jack it up or oat, oat fiber or yeah, mm-hmm. like they're just jacking up the fiber content and then so they can market it as a low carbohydrate. Yeah. How about those types of fibers? Like, are those still okay or? Um, they're okay. Those- they're going to cause some yeah. bloating for sure. And maybe some gas, especially in the beginning. They're not going to have as many health benefits. Like oats are one of those, you know, especially if you get gluten-free oats or steel cut oats, they have a nice ratio mm-hmm. of the insoluble to soluble fiber. So you're going to get a lot of health benefits on top of the microbiome benefits. You know, food, whole foods are always going to be your best I don't or have an issue with a ton of inulin or anything like that yeah. or the chicory root that they'll add. But, you know, it, it could give you a little bit of gas for sure. But the yeah. gas is your bacteria eating the fiber and creating yeah. the gas. You know, <laughs> okay, I'm having a good time. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so. for sure. <laughs> wow, we got all this coming in. Thank you. It's not going to have the same health impact over time, but it does help lower that carbohydrate number, which is yeah. what the manufacturer is after. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's let's now like kind of turn the discussion towards probiotics yeah. in particular, because this this is daunting when it comes yeah. to, you know, I, again, I, I've been in this world now for quite a while, and even I will look at a shelf of probiotic supplements, and I'd be like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. I don't exactly know what's good, what's bad, things like that. So we already kind of mentioned probiotics, which would be the bacteria that we consume through our food. Yes. And I think most people understand the the food sources of that fermented products. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I do want to clear up first and foremost is that we ca- can we alter our microbiome through probiotic intake? Like, is that something yes. that's well-established? Well-established, no, but yes, okay. you can. It's going to depend on the type of probiotic that you are using. And I think that is the challenge is that there's a lot of research on on a lot of different probiotics. So, and they're not all created equal. So I think you do have to be very specific. And this is almost like a, a prescription. We want to be really careful about what we're utilizing and, and what we're utilizing before. Okay. So let's, as, as much as you can, I guess let's kind of start sure. at the beginning. Like, Yeah, that's fine. Piece, what are people looking for yep. when they're looking at a probiotic supplement? Like okay. what are the basics that someone will need to look at? It's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. You go to Whole Foods or something and then you're you- like, where do I start? And, you know, I hear from a lot of practitioners and, and doctors, well, they want to just rotate probiotics. Honestly, I think they mainly do it because they don't know where to go. And so they're like, well, right. I'm going to keep rotating around and maybe something else stick. But like, yeah, if diversity is what we're going for, let's just yeah. throw a bunch at it. Throw a bunch at it. And that's kind yeah. of like the spaghetti on the wall method exactly. so we want to use a little we can use some some precision beyond that when you go to the store you're going to see 90 percent of the probiotics out there are bifidobacteria and lactobacillus those are by and far the most commonly used ones and and i'm not poo-pooing those because they have their purpose but for the longest time we've been using them wrong and i'll tell you why hmm. okay lactobacillus and bifidobacteria live in your colon Naturally, you want them there. They're very healthy, but they're not meant to live in an oxygen, high oxygen environment. Remember, your colon has low oxygen and it's a different pH. It's kind of this dark depth world. So living in this oxygen environment can naturally kill some of the bacteria. Now, when a manufacturer is creating their probiotic, utilizing those probiotics, they often put a lot of extra live bacteria in there because it's going to slowly die as it's on the shelf. 
So that's okay. one mark against it is that it's just not naturally able to survive in, in our own world of an oxygenated environment. Number two, it has to go through your stomach and your stomach acid has a purpose. They call it the gastric gauntlet for a reason. We want to kill bacteria. That's its main, one of its main yeah, roles exactly. in the body. <laughs> and then after that, you're going to be assaulted with bile acids and um, enzymes, all in which should kill microorganisms. That, that was, I should have, that was a very intense phrase. We got a gauntlet. We're Gauntlet. being assaulted. We're getting like, wow, this is intense. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. That's okay. I love it. Very dramatic about the bacteria. Yeah. Yes. And so, I mean, that is your body's intention and that's what it's been designed mm -hmm. to do. So it's no right. small feat to go from your mouth to your colon in that process. Yeah. It's a high expectation. Now we can get some benefit from those probiotics, but I'm going to table that for now. Okay. There's a, there's a type of probiotic that we like to use in, in my line of work. It's called the bacillus spore. So bacillus spores, and when everyone hears the word spore, they often think of mold spores or anthrax as a spore, you know, these really negative, scary terms. But bacterial spores or bacillus spores in certain strains are naturally able to survive the gastric system. Essentially, they're in a hibernative state. They're hibernating and they have this hard coating around them as a protection, armor. And that allows them to naturally traverse your gastrointestinal system and reach the colon. Once they reach the colon, they open up and kind of flourish. And then they're able to support the gut in various ways. Now, the reason I use bacillus spores the most is they feed the bacteria around. So they're the ones that are creating short-chain fatty acids. They're the ones that are digesting fiber and helping to feed the other bacteria. I don't care so much about the bacillus spores. I care about nurturing the ecosystem, the rainforest. And that's what they're set up to do. So there's a, a lot of different strains, and they've been used very widely in Europe for 60 years. They're newer here in the United States or, or newer to the marketplace, but you do see them popping up more and more. So there's plenty of research on their ability to survive, and that's kind of the key point there. They've, they're able to survive it thousands of years in a dormant state. So it's it's pretty fascinating. They've actually done sort of the Jurassic Park experiment where they mm. they excrete it or they get it from one of those pieces of amber and they were able to take the bacillus spore out of the the fossilized amber or sap or whatever it is <laughs> yeah, and put yeah. on like a, a plate and look at it under a microscope and it and it's alive, you know? So it's very fascinating. Yeah. So those give you the most broad spectrum result. And at the end of the day, we're going to be able to support the bacteria like bifidobacteria and lactobacillus with bacillus spores. So it's just a, it's a roundabout way of supporting the gut, but you're going to have a much more foundational approach. That's sort of the, some of the top ones on the marketplace today, yeah. bifidobacteriobacillus. Okay. So when, I mean, most of the products on the shelves are not spores. No, right? no. So, so someone, I think Garden of Life has one, and then we obviously have yeah. our own. So when it comes to, yeah, like going to Walmart and getting something like a line, maybe a line is spores. I don't know. Actually, a line's not so bad, but we can read. That's just the first one I could think of that came to mind. But yeah, like almost all, almost all the probiotics that I've ever taken, it's just a capsule with what yep. looks like a white powder in it. Um, so let's return to a line. I want to use that as an example okay. real quick, if you don't mind. 
Okay, so a line is the most commonly recommended probiotic for from gastroenterologists, right? That's Sertag. And it's actually a strain that our company owns. It's a bifidobacteria strain called 35624. So it's kind of like it's barcode. And each bacteria, you, you kind of, you want to know what is it and what does it do? You don't want to just kind of guess. So we're just going to throw these bacteria into your body. The bacteria, like, we need to understand. But a line is good for IBS. So it's a very singular application. And it's good for IBS and IBS alone. It's not going to give you that broad spectrum result. So when you do utilize some of the ones um, more commonly seen in the marketplace, like the bifidobacteria strains, like the lactobacillus strains, you, you will want to use them just for very specific reasons. Whether it's, hmm. and we can get really creative, they, they can bind heavy metals, they can bind bacterial toxins from pathogenic organisms like H. pylori. They can support things like IBS or help with infant diarrhea, but you're not going to get the broad immunity health or you know, helping to really keep that colon healthy state like we want. So then when it comes to, yeah, absolutely. When it comes to then looking at a product, then are you looking for multiple different strains of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium? So like how do you know you're getting that full spectrum? Oh, that's hard. That's a hard one because it should be strain specific. It should, the, the strain should have a reason to use it and they should be explaining. The best products out there have the strain mapped out and understood fully. Most, I would say 99%. Do. And hmm. I think there is a lot of garbage on the shelf because of it. It's a it's a moneymaker. You know, it's a popular supplement for people to take and manufacturers. Know. But the ones that have done it right, you know, there's some good ones. This biome is a really good one. Align is totally fine. Um, you can go on Amazon and get Just Thrive. That's direct to consumer. And that's so no prescription needed. And those are spores. We definitely like that brand as well. And then obviously our company for healthcare providers is called Microbiome Labs. So our our flagship okay. product is called Megaspore, and we use five different strains of bacillus that all have a different function. And but we want to understand those functions. We're not just like, hey, here you go. Here's a little cocktail. See how you yeah, do. Right. Yeah, right. I think a lot of people see probiotics as like a foundational maintenance supplement. Mm -hmm. And that's something you would caution against. Yeah, I, right? honestly, I don't, I don't think you need to. I'd say if you were on a good probiotic for three months and you were taking steps to incorporate microbiome-friendly foods in the form of fiber, fermented foods, um, phytonutrients from your, your brightly colored berries and brightly colored fruits and vegetables, those are all the foods that your, your, your gut loves to consume. And if you can, you know, start to clean up your diet and lifestyle. You don't need to be on a probiotic for life. Now, hmm. the, the catch is we don't live in a bubble, you know, and I think that's hard right. when we have a lot of pesticides yeah. on the foods that we're consuming and we're exposed to antibiotics because they save lives. But, you know, so you do have to go back yes. here and there and revisit. So it can't be just a, a one-time thing either. So obviously antibiotics would be a situation where we potentially mm -hmm. might want to look at a probiotic, using a probiotic. What are some other signs or symptoms that somebody might need to pay attention yeah. to and think, okay, there there's might be something going on with my gut. I should look into this. 
Yeah, again, you know, you can have those obvious gut symptoms and digestive health symptoms, acid reflux, a lot of bloating, indigestion, looser stools. Those are the, certainly the, the most common. But I would, again, just look at diet quality as well. You know, not everyone can afford to eat 100% organic. Can, food costs are going up more and more and more, and, and that's hard. So taking a look at diet quality, if you can't afford organic everything, which I understand, look for the dirty dust. What are the top most pesticide-laden foods? Because those pesticides, although they might not hurt human cells, they kill bacteria. That's their point. Hmm. They're actually antimicrobial in property. Something like glyphosate or Roundup, and Roundup is horrible, can Hmm. kill up to 54% of the bacteria in your gut. And so that that becomes important because we... All of our crops are laden with glyphosate, yeah. even if they're not organic, pretty much. So um, huh. working there, because yeah. you're always kind of chasing yourself in some sense because of the foods that we consume. You know, other things in the household, not using antimicrobial cleaners. And you know, there's so many great cleaners that are out there now. You know, maybe if you're, you're cooking with chicken or whatever, and there's always a risk for bacteria, sure. But under most circumstances, we don't want a sterile household. We want to live in this microbial cloud that's our own. And that includes the people living in your house, your pets. It shouldn't be sterile. We shouldn't, this shouldn't even be a goal. Yeah. I think with COVID, that's made it hard. Eight, I think sure. I read a stat the other day, hand sanitation went up 800%, which is you know no surprise. And yeah. we're constantly trying to kill every organism around us because of it. For sure. Yeah, it definitely would be a balancing act. And the, the pesticide thing is really interesting because, yeah, if you're trying to support your environment by eating more fruits and vegetables, well, now you've maybe inadvertently, now your your consumption of pesticide has gone up as well. So you're kind of, like you said, fighting yourself. Or you're chasing, you're always chasing yourself a little bit. Um, yeah, and I'm not a fear so, monger. I don't, I don't want to be that way, but, no. you know. Go to Aldi. There's great price to organics and yeah. or grow your own food in your backyard in the summer. You know, yeah. That's one way. Don't use Roundup. Yeah, I've never heard that point brought up with gut health before. So mm-hmm. that that's a new one to me for sure. So I want to go back to probiotic supplements for just a second. Sure. Um, <clears throat> another kind of confusing aspect of probiotic supplementation is, is the dosage um, yep. and how not only the like what the units are, but what they mean. So how how is dosing communicated in probiotic supplements and, and what does that mean? There is no strong scientific rigor, I will have to say, with what the dose really should be. It's all over the map. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, probiotics are dosed in something called CFU counts, and that's colony forming units. It's really just the count of all of the live and viable bacteria that are living within this probiotic. And a probiotic is defined as a live microorganism that should provide human health benefits. It's really the ultimate goal. Now, as we mentioned, the CFU counts are, are typically not totally easy to predict because bacteria are dying as they sit on the store shelves mm. in, in most, bac- yep. most probiotics die over time. But the dosing is anywhere from 1 billion to 10 billion CFUs. You've got trillions of bacteria in your gut. So 10 billion, 50 billion, it, it's, it's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean when you really think about it. So it's not a lot, but there isn't really 
an absolute number that we should be aiming for that it would make the biggest impact in human It does vary in the research and it varies in the formulation. And I think one way in which companies just try to beat each other is by adding more. I'm going to add more strains, add more bacteria because it just makes it easy for the consumer then to look at the back of the label and say, oh, well, this one has more. So it's better value. Like it's just the easiest way to comprehend all this. I'm going to buy this one. When really it should just be about, is it clear what it's doing for you? Is it clear its purpose? Does it have you know, science to back it. And I know that's a lot for a consumer to go after and look for. It's it's hard. And there aren't a lot of companies out there that are performing the science to go along with their products. I think that's that's super critical. The the products we mentioned though, they do have a lot of science backing them. Align, BizBiome, our products with Microbiome Labs are all backed by tons of research. And and it's good to start there. Just Thrive as well is another brand. Yeah. Okay. Some, you know, dietitians and some people got health experts, they almost kind of like warn against just randomly trying probiotics because like, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, it's just, Hey, let's throw a bunch together. Let's yeah. just try to one up each other with the, the CFU count. Is that something you would also agree with? What they're probably warning against is something called a Hertz reaction, a Hertzheimer reaction. So when you start introducing new bacteria, you could cause a shift in the bacteria living there. Now you could feel that when you're when you're shifting and changing your own gut ecology, hmm. and that could lead to more looser stools and or, or upset stomach feeling, just a nauseous feeling in general. That usually goes away. And what we do is we have people taper really slowly onto our products because they are pharmaceutical grade. So we want to go low and slow and, and get them up to a full dose. But we, we introduce things slowly because you don't know how people will react. You think you do. You think you can predict it, but you just yeah. can't. So we like to be Yeah, cautious. you don't know what's living inside them, really. I right know, exactly. You know, unfortunately, yeah, we can't take a look. So we usually go really slowly. So that may be one reason why people weren't against it. And then the medical community, there's a lot of bad probiotic research. You know, a lot of research shows that probiotics do nothing. And, and that's, that's the truth because they're not using probiotics that have a mapped out purpose and strain. Hmm. And, and so I think sometimes we're asking the wrong questions. For example, dead bacteria can also provide benefits. We use, we have one, two, we have a few formulations. I don't know how many. The bacteria is dead. We're not saying it's alive. But even that dead bacteria can play a role in things like improving the gut-brain signal, improving anxiety, depression, cortisol, your stress response. So we can use bacteria in different ways. So there's a chance that some of these research studies have been run incorrectly. We're looking for them to fulfill a purpose they were never meant to. And so that's kind of a cool space where we'll see a lot of growth in the probiotic market. Very cool. What do we know about, so this is a performance podcast. So what do we know about probiotics and athletic performance? It's like the, the only thing I've ever really seen at like conferences and stuff is this just like kind of vague, indirect impact yeah. because it keeps you healthier for like, you just get sick less often. Yeah. But is that basically what we know or are there other ways that probiotics can impact sports performance? So, I mean, definitely it can help with overall metabolic health as we sort of touched upon. Probiotics help to play a role with the entire gut to keep 
your intestinal tract really sealed. So if we think about your colon, your intestinal tract is one single layer of cells. That's it. One single layer. It's like as thick as your hair. That's it. Separating you from the outside world, which is wild. And so if you don't have a healthy gut, if there is a lot of inflammation, it creates something called dysbiosis. That's kind of a, mm. a term for inflammation in the gut. Now, when that happens, it can create little holes in that single layer of cells. And then inflammatory compounds and bacteria can enter your bloodstream and it can cause a lot of inflammation in the body. We don't want that, right? We want to avoid inflammation, especially as an athlete. If you are an endurance athlete or somebody performing at a high intensity, you're more susceptible to those leaks in, in the colon and holes in the colon. It's called leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And so probiotics can play a role in helping to heal that. We want to heal and seal the gut. We want it to look like a brick wall where there are no cracks. We want nothing between. So that's one thing that's really important. Another fascinating area is some bacteria, especially Bacillus subtilis, creates something called vitamin K2. And unlike vitamin K1, which helps to clot our blood, vitamin K2 plays a role in a a lot of different bodily functions. But one of the cool things that we've seen in research, in our own research, is that it helps with blood perfusion and, and helping to improve your VO2 max, helping prevent some of those plateaus that we see in extensive training. We did a study on athletes, on professional athletes, where they took vitamin K2 for 60 days and they had a huge increase in their oxygen consumption and blood perfusion, which helped with the clearance of lactic acid, helping with muscle recovery, helping deliver nutrients to every part of their body. So we see some of these bacterial byproducts in the form of vitamins play a role in overall health too, especially K2. You don't get it in your diet at all. That's another interesting topic to dive into. Wow. That is fascinating. So, so that might become like the new arginine potentially is like. Oh, heck yeah. You'll see move over vitamin D because K2 plays a huge role in bone health, especially. Yeah, That's a fascinating area. If you're looking for really good sources, MK7, vitamin K2, you only get it from bacterial fermentation. So you can't, unless you're eating organ meat all day long and eating fermented soybeans, you're not getting K2 in your diet. I certainly kind of hate those foods. (laughs) Yep, most people do. Yeah, yeah. But it depends on, again, the gut where you're secreting not only vitamin K2, but B vitamins, all nutrients are being created there as well. And you get to absorb some of them. So it's all. Yeah, very cool. Well, yeah, clearly there's a, Gosh, there's so much on this topic. And I know that you and your company are doing, you do a lot of education. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's your role. So like, I guess, yeah, tell, tell us what educational opportunities exist, what's out there. And, and I guess, where can listeners go to, to learn more about this stuff? Sure. Yeah. We're always hitting the streets and doing a lot to educate the masses. There's a big thirst for microbiome education. Some of our upcoming educational opportunities. You can follow us on Instagram, Microbiome Labs. And we usually feature our bigger events on there, Whether and most of them are virtual, thanks to COVID. We just had one last week on the microbiome and toxic exposure and how to support natural detoxification processes. They may even have a link, I'm not sure, to, to watch that entire series where we have a number of 
clinicians and physicians talking about how the microbiome plays a role in detox pathways. At the end of this month on fullscript.com, we'll be doing a talk on the pediatric microbiome and the importance of supporting the children's microbiome. And Fullscript is a a place where you can buy professional-grade supplements. So I think they've got something like 20,000 different supplements on there. But ours are the most popular, actually, and because okay, we huh? have really good efficacy. We want to, to create products that make a difference. And then from there, I'm trying to think. We're always doing stuff regionally, locally. A lot of my team members are, are always doing webinars. So if you are a healthcare provider, you can open an account with us. And we host four webinars a month and, and do that as well. And you can always go to YouTube and type in Microbiome Labs, and you'll see a number of lectures from us on various topics, from intro level to deep diving into more advanced microbiome topics as well. So. And then are you, like, what do you, what do you personally do as far as education? Are you delivering any kind of yeah. webinars or uh, providing anything yourself? Yeah, we, we speak at a lot of conferences. I I don't have that many coming up. I'm actually thinking I'll be in Florida. Some of them are live for A4M. Mm-hmm. It's one of the age management conferences. I do webinars each month virtually, depending on what the needs are for some of our accounts, some of the doctors. But I don't have anything slated at this point. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. I just yeah, yeah, want to yeah. make sure if, if you personally were doing something that we could promote that and highlight that as well. So when you say healthcare providers, you're primarily referring to medical doctors, right? Or like can dietitians? Medical doctors, dietitians, naturopaths, chiropractors, pharmacists, kinesiologists, you know, anyone, physical therapists. If you work in a hospital or work with any sort of patient group, we want to have even health coaches and we, we allow them to open accounts. And then, then you have a lot of direct access, science questions, science support, and my team helps there. Oh, one, one a... event to mention, I forgot, I'm sorry. We were working okay. with Jeff Bland in the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. At the end of April, we'll be doing a, a virtual learning opportunity on the gut-brain connection. We'll be talking about anxiety, depression, and IBS. IBS is now a gut-brain condition. So it's being reclassified as a disorder where the gut and brain are interacting. There's a lot of cool research there, and we have a couple of really interesting products with a lot of scientific backing we'll be discussing. Awesome. Well, this has been extremely informative, and I'm so glad that we could get you on. And all the things you mentioned, I'll definitely put in the show notes so that people can, can find them as easily as possible. And Lacey, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Corey. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.